You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and this week I'm talking with Dr. Kwanisha Penna, a user experience researcher for Facebook. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Kwanisha Penna. I am a UX researcher at Facebook for the Ads Measurement Organization. Now, what does a UX researcher do, actually? Talk with people. Talk with people, try to understand what their motivations are, their goals are when they come to a product or service. And service design is its own separate area, but UX research goes across so many different disciplines and different industries because there's always a user of, there's always a user or a consumer of a product or service on the other side. And you say you're working in the ads measurements department of Facebook? Yes. Okay. So what does a, a typical day sort of look like for you when you're working there? Typical day for me, if it's earlier in the week, uh, there'll be a lot of planning meetings, working with our product designers, our content strategists, uh, engineers, product managers around the strategy for the product roadmaps. And if it's in the middle of the week, middle to the, towards the end of the week, I tend to be in research sessions. So those will be one-on-one. It could be usability testing for a new concept or usability testing on a current design, something that's already currently live and in the field. Or it could just be a just a conversation to understand uh, a certain business's organizational structure and policies around how they set up their marketing and advertising. And specifically, I try to focus on the analytics part. And that essentially is after a campaign or an ad has been set up and it's run, I try to help the advertisers and marketers understand all the data that Facebook collects for them about their particular ad. Okay. And from that information, try to uh, let them, they make the decisions themselves, but try to empower them and give them more confidence in their own decisions as to say, hey, next week we're going to be running the same campaign, but we need to tweak this headline or we need to tweak this image or we should think uh, about the the targeting, whatever it may be. Um, but we let, but they make the decisions. My job is just to try to help them understand the information that we provide them. And now we've had quite a few uh, Facebook people on the show before. We actually did a series of interviews out at Facebook in 2016. I'm curious, what attracted you to work for Facebook? For me, what drew me to this particular position at Facebook is that I thought that this would be the perfect opportunity for me to bring in my engineering and systems design and research skill and background and working with the community. Um, My previous job at Intel, which I loved everything that I did there and the different career opportunities I had there. However, I was working in hardware, so I was always one or two steps removed from end consumers. 
Whereas in this case, for this particular position, I get to work and talk with small, medium-sized business owners themselves, persons who may be starting out, uh, or it may be somebody who's been doing this kind of work uh, in their field or in their niche for 30 years, but maybe they're new to marketing and advertising in social media space. Um, or it could be, you know, I'm talking with someone who's an analyst who's in the weeds and, and down into the numbers uh, of, again, um, whatever ad campaigns that they're running at a much larger corporation. And for me, that brings me closer to the community, to the people. Uh, what would you say has kind of been the biggest challenge so far with uh, this work? <sighs> Every person is different. Mm-hmm. Every human is different. And then trying to translate that and to try and find patterns. So I may talk with, say, 15 people and get 15 different responses in regards to, you know, the a concept that I may be testing with them. And I have to try and find patterns <laughs> within those 15 comments that I get from them. Try and find those patterns and then translate what I find into insights for the engineers. The engineers are like, well, can we just build one thing for everybody that's going to work all the time for every person? <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's not how that's not how this works, because every person is different. Every person's going to they may have the same motivations and goals, but they will have different experiences. They will have different backgrounds. Hey, they may even have a different environment that day. They may have had a really horrible commute coming into work. And now all of a sudden that changes their entire mindset about how they think about uh, their inner, how they think and how they interact with your, your, your tool, your tool or service that you're providing them. Mm-hmm. How do you approach new projects at Facebook? It sounds like you're doing a lot of maybe surveys or interviews with people. That's what it sounds like. But how do you sort of approach new projects? Uh, new projects. I initially, um, I, I get a lot of requests. So research, mm-hmm. uh, is one of those areas, is one of those disciplines that's, uh, there's not enough of us to go around. So when it comes to a new project, usually a new request will come in either from my product team that I support, or it may come in from another researcher in another part of the organization. That's like, Hey, I think you may be working on something similar or, uh, our our products may um, may may cross paths in the future, so let's work together on this. Let's collaborate. So it depends on if it's an, if it's an internal to my product or if it's external to the product itself. But if it's internal to the product, then I start talking with the product manager to understand. Okay, what uh, what are your milestones that you're looking at? Because if you're going to be launching soon, then that's obviously going to impact what I can do, what I can actually get for you. So I need to understand the schedule. And then once I understand the schedule, then I can, uh, then I go and I try to figure out what the problem space currently looks like. Mm -hmm. I need to understand what do you already know about this problem space and not just from a business standpoint, but what do you know about the users in this problem space? Because this problem that you're solving, it may not, who, who is it a problem for? Um, is it a problem for them all the time or is it a problem for them maybe once a quarter when they have to pull a particular type of report and talk to a stakeholder? Mm-hmm. So I have to understand who the users are um, as well. And this is all bef- and this is all planning. This is all before I even talk to anybody. Yeah. And then once I understand who the users in the space are, then I can start to think about recruitment and the recruitment piece. That's where I actually feel inclusiveness starts there for for in this overall process, because 
the people that I bring into our research sessions, I try to make, I have to do a lot of, um, I have to do a lot of screening to make sure that I'm getting a good representation of who our users are. And sometimes engineers or the product managers, they may have a certain idea in their head already as to who the user is. And I have to be the one to break it to them to say, hey, according to data, that's that ideal user doesn't exist or Mm -hmm. that ideal user you're thinking about is a small fraction of the actual user population. So the recruiting piece um, is there's a lot of science to it, but it's also a lot of art as well. So it sounds like you make sure not to make any sort of decisions at all until you really analyze the data. So there's a lot of strategy that goes into it. Mm-hmm. This is all. Yeah. And a lot of strategy goes into it. This is all before I even talk to anyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I want to go, you know, more into your you know career overall. I know we started off talking about Facebook, but how did you first get into this field? Like when when did you first sort of get the spark to do UX research? So I completed my undergrad in 07, 2007 from Stanford. And that at that time, I had dreamed that I was going to go to do a master's in product design or master's in industrial engineering. And then I was going to go on to do my JD. And I would have came out in 2012 at the height of the patent wars. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to be in a great position. I'm going to have this really great multidisciplinary background from Stanford. I'm going to have this product design and then I'm going to have a law law degree. And I would have came out at the height of that. And somewhere along the lines, when I was working on my master's degree at North Carolina A&T, I realized that, you know what? I like this. I like I like thinking about technology in this way. I like talking with folks. I like understanding what it is they're trying to do. Uh, try And then also, I like bridging the connections, you know, bridging connections between things that people think didn't have anything to do with one another. And that's kind of where the spark came for me. So you, you started out at Stanford for your undergrad, and then you went to North Carolina A&T to get your master's, as well as your, your PhD. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So I'm curious why or, or what I should say prompted the shift to go from a school like Stanford to North Carolina A&T. And we sort of talked about this a little bit before recording. You know, we've had people on the show who maybe have started at an HBCU and then went to like a larger PWI, let's say, for continuing their education. But you kind of went the other route. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I actually get asked this question a lot. Uh, <laughs> I describe it as going from the ivory tower to the ebony tower. <laughs> um, I'm a make your own path person. Okay, I tend not to go straight from A to to D. <laughs> Sometimes I may make a left or make a U turn and go to L and then come back to D. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I tend to be a make make my own path kind of person what what makes the most sense at that point in time for me. And I can tell you that after I um, my in my last year at Stanford, I actually applied to, I think it was about seven different master's programs, including uh, UPenn, uh, not UPenn, uh, Penn State Industrial mm-hmm. Engineering Program. I applied to Georgia Tech. And I got into, I got into, I think, all the programs except for one. And of the six programs that I got into, 
North Carolina A&T, they didn't offer me any money up front. Hmm. So I didn't have any kind of scholarship going in because uh, my GPA was not was was OK. <laughs> it was not it was not amazing. It was not some stellar GPA, even though I was at Stanford. Most schools were like, well, that that doesn't mean anything to us. The number is what we need. We need that raw number and your raw number is not there. But mm-hmm. I actually didn't have any funding up front. So I didn't have any funding up front and I was going to have to take uh, some some background courses just to get up to speed. And what helped that decision is I actually went and visited. I talked with different professors in the department. I dropped in on a few I dropped in on a few grad students who were in the labs late and I talked with them. And I also have family, I have a ton of family in Greensboro, North Carolina. Mm hmm. That also made the decision, uh, the decision that also factored in. It's like, okay, I'll have, I'll be close to family. So if I need a home cooked meal, I can get one because being in grad school, I'm probably not going to have any money and I'm probably not going to have food (laughs) and sustenance. Um, So I will have family in the air that I can get to easily. Uh, I also looked at my commuting options. I said, okay, well, how far of a, no, um, how far of a walk would it be for me? Because I didn't have a car. So I didn't have a car in California and I didn't plan on buying a car in North Carolina either. And so, so how far of a walk is it going to be? Do they have on, um, on-campus housing? So I looked at on-campus housing. I looked at finances. I looked at how close would I be to, um, to family. I looked at the professors. I looked at the curriculum. I also uh, talked to a few alumni at, uh, in, very, in different companies. And actually, there were North Carolina A&T alumni who were in the Bay Area that I had talked to. And they're like, yeah, I went there for undergrad. It was amazing. It was fantastic. All the parties, all this, all that. I'm like, OK, I don't really need the parties and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for telling me all that. They're like, you're going to love Jiho. I'm like, what is a what? <laughs> who? <laughs> so I, I looked at all these different factors, not just at North Carolina A&T. I also looked at, at Georgia Tech because Georgia Tech was in Atlanta, was in Midtown. My mother lived um, at the time in Douglasville. So I'd have been close to my mom. I have uncles and aunts there. But again, I looked at all these different factors. And what it came down to for me is I looked at all these different factors, did all my visits, did all my research, went to sleep and woke up the next morning and prayed on it very hard. And it just came to me. It was like, you're going to North Carolina. It's like, it's going to be hot. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be hot. It's going to be humid. But you're going to North Carolina. And in addition, initially, I'm from New Jersey. So I have a ton of family as well in New Jersey. So being a, being on the East Coast, being in North Carolina, that also made it easy for me to access other family. My, my dad, my sisters and brothers, I have seven sisters and brothers. So I was able to get to them when I wanted to for their different birthday parties, barbecues, etc. And that having that family part, I knew was going to be that was going to be key for me to get through grad school mm-hmm. from all. Cause that was something that I saw a lot of because, cause you're right. So a lot of the HBCU grads who came to Stanford that I met, they didn't have family in California. All their family was all back on the East coast. And those students, um, they were amazing. They were brilliant, but they, sh- but so many of them struggled internally. And I thought about that when I made my decision, it's like, I, I need to, like, I want to have my family. No, I mean, I think certainly you weigh the the options. I mean, I'm glad that you went into 
talking about doing all the, you know, sort of research and everything from that. And I didn't mean to, you know, and I'm, I'm hoping for people that are listening, I'm not trying to set up this like dichotomy between HBCUs and other schools. I mean, North Carolina ENT is a, a well-renowned research institution. Mm-hmm. And clearly, I mean, they offer, I don't know how many other HBCUs offer masters and PhD programs at the level that they do. So yeah. going to that school certainly is a deliberate, you know, decision just in terms of furthering your career. Yeah, it definitely was. And like I said, I went and I talked with the professors and I looked at their curriculum and I looked at the research they were doing. I looked at all of that. So what was your time like there overall? I mean, it was good that you had your family there to kind of have that uh, that moral support, that family support that I think, you know, certainly we need when going through times like that. But educationally, what was your time like there? It was quiet. <laughs> it, it was quiet for me. And and I say it was quiet for me in that all of the, I guess, like a lot of the social parts um, that, you know, that uh, folks hear about or they think about when they like, oh, yeah, North Carolina and THBCU. A lot of the, the social parts I didn't take part in just because I was so focused because mm-hmm. I actually finished my Ph.D. in three years. So I did the master's in two and then did the Ph.D. in three. Wow. So I was. Yeah, I was on it. <laughs> and every summer. I had an internship at a different company, whether um, I worked at GE for one summer, I worked at IBM another summer, I worked uh, for the NSF another summer, who else? Uh, I worked for a consulting company in in Marietta, Georgia for a summer. So I was in school and working all the way around. So for me, I say it was quiet and I didn't do too much of the socializing and partying, but I will say that the the work ethic of the graduate students in the industrial systems engineering department was phenomenal mm. because I would never be the only one in the lab at two o'clock in the morning trying to get some simulation <laughs> to run. <laughs> like I could always look over and see that there would be like six or seven other students working on problem sets. And these are grad students who are like, we got to get this stuff done or or they're studying for their uh, qualifying exams or for the preliminary exams, whatever it may be. So that, so yeah, so it was a very quiet time, but the quietness allowed me to really um, focus and get to the, you know, um, get the, get the work done and get to the next step. And yeah, I figure by the time you're in, in graduate school, I mean, that's the time when you need to be focused and serious anyway. I mean, not to say that people don't go to grad school and party it up, but if you're, if you got there with a mission, like I totally understand <laughs> I totally understand that. Um, aside from that, how was the how was the experience, say, different from Stanford? I mean, aside from like, you know, the obvious way of being an HBCU versus Stanford. But how how was it different from your undergrad experience? Let's see. So there's so many different things. Oh, when I got there, one of the things that my mother to this day, she still talks about is the first day at A&T, they didn't have an electronic uh, registration system yet. Mm. So registration was still in person and you had to stand on these huge long lines. And (laughs) Stanford had electronic system like several years early. So I never stood in a line at Stanford to register for classes. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother, uh, to this day, she still talks to me. She's like, I just don't believe it. How was that possible? This is supposed to be an engineering powerhouse. I'm like, well, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, <laughs> so there were um, administration differences um, like that, that in some cases, yeah, it was you know irritating at the time, but I was like, you know what? This is just something that I may, 
not only go through here at North Carolina a and I may go through this um, in a future job or in a future, you know, in a future setting. So stand in line. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Learn how to stand in line and be patient. <laughs> That's something HBCUs definitely will teach you one way or another. There's there's going to be lines. You're just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and that's something. Hey, look, think about it this way. TSA, all the lines we have to stand in. Hey, that's that true. That is true. That is very true. Uh, you mentioned being from Jersey. What was it like uh, growing up there? Were you kind of exposed to to tech and design in this way at, a, at an early age? No, actually, I wasn't. Um, I didn't get exposed to tech and design until I was... Uh, well into my undergrad. Uh, so no, in New Jersey, it was uh, public public school all the way through um, from central Jersey, kind of towards the Jersey shore, small town called Lakewood. My family's from Freehold. We have been there for well over a century in that area. So wow. lots of family in that area. But, you know, I excelled in math and science. I took AP classes when they were available. Mm-hmm. I But a lot of things I did, I was always very self-sufficient in regards to researching my options. Mm-hmm. Because when I applied to college, I applied to, I think it was about 10 schools I applied to. And they were mostly uh, East Coast. They were a combination of public Rutgers and SUNY Albany. But then I also applied to Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth. And then on the other side of the country, I applied to Stanford and to USC. And nobody in my family at that point in time had been west of the Mississippi. So they're like, where is California? Mm-hmm. How far is this? Who do you know out there? We know no one out there. I was like, oh. I was like, I don't know. I said, but I'm going to try it out. Uh, yeah. It's got palm trees. <laughs> 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 they don't have winter there. They don't have like eight feet of snow like we do in the winter. <laughs> yeah. So I was very self-sufficient in researching my options. And then also I was very active in a lot of different activity, extracurricular activities, as well as I had a job every summer. So again, kind of that same keeping myself busy and trying not to get sidetracked or distracted the way some of my classmates or family members may have with other things. So I focused, um, so I did soccer, track, marching band, and I did musicals every year. (laughs) What instrument did you play in the marching band? Alto saxophone, tenor saxophone, and a little bit of clarinet if they needed it. But I wasn't, was never too good at clarinet. (laughs) (laughs) Was your family supportive of you like going across the country to Stanford? I mean, it sounds like there were a lot of like roots put down there where you were in Jersey. Yeah. Um, initially, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone was like, why are you trying to leave us? <laughs> but as we got closer to the time for me to go, the excitement grew. They were like, oh, my God, this is going to be fantastic. It's going to be so cool. You're going to be in California. You're going to be hanging out in Hollywood with celebrities. I'm like, I, I, like I'm not sure how close that is, but OK. <laughs> like You're going to see celebrities and you're going to a really great school. And we hear all these great things about this school on TV. We always see it on CNN. And so the excitement came later. I think initially the shock and I think initially the shock kind of had to wear off on folks. Mm-hmm. And then for some of the younger folks, they were like, hey, you know, once you get settled out there, you know, let me know so I can get a plane ticket. I can come out there and visit. You know, we be out there in the West Coast. We can hang out with E Fody and, you know, Snoop Dogg <laughs> and we can be out the West Coast. We be out there crip walking. I'm like, 
I was like, I, again, I'm not sure if E40 is going to be at Stanford, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. No, I, I remember when I was in uh, in high school, I applied to a, a bunch of different schools too. And I think, I think I applied to Stanford too. I got into several different schools, but my mom was very much like, you're not going anywhere that I can't drive. Like, mm, yep. I was thinking, cause like I wanted to go to, I, I mean, I wanted to go to Stanford, wanted to go to California, just wanted to go mostly out into the Bay area because this was right around the time that the internet was really starting to take off. This was like 1999. Yeah, and I had been <laughs> experimenting with HTML and making web pages and stuff. And I was like, I need to go out there where it's happening. And my mom was like, nope. I was <laughs> like, I'm not getting on a plane. It's not happening. We ended up like kind of splitting the difference. I ended up going to, to Morehouse, which is just, you know, one state over in Georgia. But mm -hmm. um, my first internship that I had was in California. It was at... Uh, at Ames Research Center out oh, okay. in uh, Moffett Field near Mountain View. Mm -hmm. And, oh, you want to talk about somebody who had a fit that I was going out to California. I mean, like... And you the, came I, back. I mean, I came back, but it was very much like, it's going to be your first time on a plane. And, and you know, I hear they have all kind of drugs and gangs out there. And I'm like, yeah. it's, I was like, I'm going to be on an army base, like, <laughs> at NASA. Like, I, I seriously doubt those two worlds are going to cross. You don't know that? I was like, and neither do you. So what's what's the problem? Yes, um, I am so familiar with all of that. <laughs> <laughs> and partying and, and this and that. and um, But you know, uh, one of the things that helped me make the decision to go to Stanford mm -hmm. is I got a phone call. So after I had got in, after I got all my acceptance letters and everything, I got a phone call from the black recruitment and orientation committee mm. they called me and they and on the phone call they're like we're so glad that you got in that you you know we hope you accept is there are there any questions you have for us um because i had missed the uh they because they have an admit weekend where they bring out all the people who've been admitted the all the prospective freshmen and stuff uh -huh. and i had missed it because i went to disney world with my marching band uh-huh I was like, I've been waiting four years for this trip. That's not, no. <laughs> <laughs> but they called me and they said, do you have any questions at all for us? Like, in fact, what can we tell you? And I was like, what about my hair? And they're like, okay, great. We got, we got you on that. Like, you can go here. We actually have a lady that's on campus. Um, she does straightening. But yeah, like you're going to have to travel a bit further out, maybe an hour and change or so to Oakland sometimes to get your hair done. But you can get your hair done. You can get your weaves and your braids and blah, blah, blah. So uh, I was like, okay, great. And then what about food? Well, you know, uh, do you guys have Jamaican food out there? Like, I love Caribbean food. And they're like, mm-hmm. We have sometimes, you know, there's a few places here, <laughs> but you're going to have to travel a bit further out. They were completely honest with me. Yeah. But the fact that they had reached out and made that phone call and then and then towards the end of it, they're like, well, what else can we do to, to help you with your decision? And I was like, really? You really know what you can do? They're like, yeah. I was like, call my mama. Mm -hmm. I still to this day still don't know what they said to her, but they did call her because <laughs> she told me she was like, did you give them my number? I was like, yes, I did. And <laughs> <laughs> And they called her um, and I don't know, it was, they must've had some kind of conversation because that was around the time when she started to soften to the idea. She was like, well, you're not going out there alone. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was the only school that called me. Wow. No, that's good that Stanford reached out in that way. Cause I, I can see, you know, a mom being 
you know, sort of scare that you're going out there and you're not going to have honestly like these basic things you're talking about, like hair, food, other black people. Like those are important things, you know, when you're going off into this stage of life, you know, yeah. as a black person. So I'm glad that they were able to call and that, you know, it sort of puts you on <laughs> the path to kind of where you are right now. Yeah. Yeah, it was it, it was it was definitely um, a big, a big moment for me. And I look back on that very, very, very warmly. And I hope they still do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to, you know, kind of shift gears here a little bit and talk about uh, inclusive design. So I was looking and doing, you know, just sort of looking at some of the research that you've done. Uh, I know when you were at Intel, you did some really fascinating research around like autonomous vehicles, even the work that you're doing right now at Facebook with UX research. You know, you're talking to so many different people, taking into account all of these sorts of viewpoints. How would you define inclusive design? And can you talk a little bit about sort of why that should be important for designers? Inclusive design should be important, not just for designers, but for anybody who's involved with building a product or service. So whether you're an engineer or whether you're the person in HR who recruits these persons, everybody should have inclusive design at the heart of whatever it is they're building and working on. Because at the center is a human. Each human is different. Now, this means that uh, with everybody being different, we need to draw on all of the different experiences that everyone brings to the table. So in order to have inclusive design, you need to have an inclusive team. And by inclusive team, yes, that can mean, you know, and I'm very cognizant of the fact that I sit at the intersection of many, of many identities. Mm-hmm. I am black. I am a woman. I am sometimes the only PhD in a room. <laughs> mm. uh, and I am, a, and uh, sometimes I'm the only mother sitting in a room. I'm a, I'm a new mom ish, newish, oh. newish mom. Congratulations. Thank you. So sometimes I'm the only mom sitting in uh, s- sitting in a room. So I'm very cognizant of that, of, of all those different identities and different experiences that I bring to the table. In addition, I also want to make sure that other people's voices are heard as well at the table. You know, for example, I know for a fact that I'm not colorblind and I don't have some of the different disabilities that different humans have. However, I want to make sure that their voices are heard at that table. So how do we get those folks at the table? How do I find them? How do we get them to uh, be in the conversation? Because we shouldn't just be designing for them. We should be designing with them. Hmm. And with that sort of inclusive education, I mean, I think it starts, I want to say it starts in schools only because we're, you know, talking education, classrooms and such. But I know that companies like Facebook do a lot of like outward recruiting to other communities to try to make sure that they're getting those viewpoints, you know, from people that might not necessarily be at the table when they're coming up with these decisions. Well, I can't speak to the different activities that Facebook does just because I've only been there for, I guess it's been about nine months. Okay. And I've just been, I'm still learning the ropes. Sometimes I, I, I don't know where the bathroom is. So <laughs> <laughs> basic stuff. So I can't speak to the different uh, outreach and community activities that Facebook does. However, I can speak to the fact that I'm there. They recruited me. Because I, uh, how I got to Facebook, I wasn't looking for a job at Facebook. A recruiter reached out to me based on my credentials and and uh, a summary and some bot and some bio uh, information that she had seen, and she reached out to me, um, mm. and that's how that process started. So 
that to me indicates that they have persons in HR and in their recruiting who are thinking about, okay, how do we bring in these other persons? How do we find them in, uh, you know, beyond the, the traditional pipeline that we already have? So they're thinking about it. So and I and I was like, well, I'm I'm an example. Like you can use me as an example. You can use me as a data point. However, you know, you need you need to um make the justification to 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 your stakeholders and your colleagues about you know looking at non traditional means of uh, recruiting. Mm-hmm. Now I know that a lot of companies try to go the route of almost putting it on their employees of color to be that you know, kind of that recruitment arm in a way, which I don't know. I, I see the utility in it, but also I don't think that's fair because it, it's like an added burden in a way. And not, I'm not, you know, speaking to what you're talking about, but I have worked with companies before that have been like, oh, well, we can just ask our black employees if they know someone and maybe they do, maybe they don't. You know, I, I think what often can end up happening with that is because you're only looking from within the networks of your employees, there's still a bit of kind of a cloistered, uh, I don't know, it's like a, a cloistered viewpoint as it relates to branching out from there because, mm-hmm. of course, you want people to come and be a culture fit and you think it makes sense. Well, if you hire this person, then this person's friend should also be good, right? Sort of. Like, it's a weird kind of thing that I see a lot of companies kind of fall back on almost as like a crutch. Maybe don't look for a cultural fit all the time. <laughs> Let's start there. Maybe find a, a round peg instead of a square peg. Let's start there. <laughs> now, see, you're shaking the table with that one because there's a lot of tech companies that are like, I don't even say tech companies. There's agencies that are like that, too, that are, I don't know, they want to be all about the culture fit. But then the culture is is normally ended up shaped by a lot of, I don't know, kind of very traditional, maybe sometimes archaic, you know, ways. Like, and toxic. I know for <laughs> and toxic ways, exactly. Like, I know... Um, some agencies will only hire other people that have worked at other agencies. Well, mm-hmm. what if you want to work for an agency but don't have agency experience? You may have the background, but because you haven't worked at an agency, all of a sudden that disqualifies you from working at an agency. Like it's a weird sort of sort of thing. I, I know that Google does this. I don't I know. Google and Apple are doing this thing now where they're not even looking at college degrees for applicants. So they're looking more so at their experience and, you know, projects and things that they've done and seeing what school they went to. So I guess try to, I don't know, break the that pipeline, which I think is a kind of an interesting method to take. It's an interesting method to take, but you still need to be aware of the bias in that kind of a method. Because, for example, like I was saying, like, you know, about inclusive design. So I start with inclusive education. I didn't have a tech and in, in science uh, background when I was in high school. So mm-hmm. I would have been I wouldn't have had any experiences or projects that would have fit into, you know, what they're looking for. Yeah. So you got to be careful with that kind of method, too. And I think at the end of the day, the the best method is to do like a systems design method and that you you look at all the different pieces. Don't just go with one method to to get your goal, to get to your goal, you know, find different paths to get to, to get to the, to get to that milestone or, or uh, get to that achievement you're trying to get to, but don't just look at just, okay, we have to go from here to here. We can only do these two things. And I think what 
um, what really restricts tech companies is that they there's always this idea of, oh, there's not enough resources to go around to do all these different things. Mm-hmm. And we have to prioritize. We can only do three like, oh, you know, these are 10 great ideas, but we can only do the three ideas that are going to have the, the biggest impact. And the other seven ideas just fall off by the wayside. And I think that's where the reduction comes in. Um, the, the there, There's a reduction in um, and, and innovation and in ideas that are generated. And yeah, and like, oh, okay, well, we can only go recruit at, you know, uh, these five schools. Yeah. Because we don't have enough resources. You need to figure out a way to scale. You're in tech. Figure out how to scale. That's what we're all, that, that's, that's part of what we're <laughs> all here for, right? We're mm-hmm. all here to figure out how to scale, how to scale, how to scale. Well, how do we scale our methods for recruiting and for getting those diver- those diverse and inclusive voices at the table? Mm-hmm. And I know we're talking about companies here, too, but I would say that even also applies with uh, with education, too. I mean, I, I've had so many students, educators or even just alumni on the show that have talked about how they might have felt like they were the only one in their department or they don't feel like they're being heard because the I don't know, maybe the the topics or things that they're bringing up or want to discuss or not are just so different from what everyone else is talking about. So when I think about inclusive education, I, I, I don't know, my mind kind of initially goes there into thinking like, well, these sorts of design schools and design programs and such also need to kind of like get with the program as well as it relates to, you know, just listening to students needs, maybe bringing in other speakers or something like that. A lot of them tend to follow really basic kind of archaic methods of, um, of sort of teaching their students. And one thing I've been hearing about, I don't know if you've heard about this concept around decolonizing design. Have you heard about this? Mm-mm. So I don't know who initially came up with it, but I've heard Dory Tunstall talk about it. She's dean at uh, OCAD in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Who else have I heard talking about it? Amelie Lamont. They've both been on the show. But uh, decolonizing design is around this concept of kind of decentering design from this, you know, kind of like Eurocentric point of view and looking more at like design in the world. Like what's design like in Japan or throughout parts of Africa or South America, et cetera, and not looking at just kind of Swiss or German or French design as kind of the the basis of what you should know in terms of being like an adequate designer. Because then what ends up happening is even if you may say have a diverse class, they've all kind of learned the same thing from the same rubric and they take that out there into the world with the companies that they work at. And it just kind of, you know, it sort of perpetuates it where you may think that there is some level of diversity because you've got people of different ages and races, et cetera, but they've still all learned like the same mm-hmm. basic mm-hmm. things. So it's like, it's inclusive. It's like, it's diverse, but not inclusive in that kind of weird way. Yeah. Like the curriculum itself. Right. Yeah. Right. Like the curriculum itself. And who's creating the curriculums. Mm, see. Ooh, exactly. That's where <laughs> That's why it's, that's why I say it's all a big system, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who's creating the curriculum? Uh, you know, you're right. I've been a big advocate for always um, whenever I'm asked to like talk on any kind of college panels, because um, sometimes I get asked to talk like on Stanford alumni panels here and there. And I'm always a, a, a big advocate and big voice about, hey, the stuff you learn in the books, those concepts and theories, that stuff it doesn't change that that's going to be there. 
What you need to be more concerned about is the stuff outside the classroom, Mm. the experiences you have. And you're absolutely right. Like there should be, uh, you know, like for those type of design curricula, I think that they should have uh, some real, they should all have real world experiences attached to them as like their capstone project or something. And by real world experience, I mean, go work with a nonprofit kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Go work with a nonprofit or go go work in the education system or uh, go work with rural farmers in, you know, um, South Africa, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, they should they should definitely expose uh their students to these different experiences because that's gonna impact how they how they think and uh what they bring to the table as an inclusive voice when they get to that when they get to that table to the design table. Absolutely. I mentioned before you had done some research around autonomous vehicles when you were I think you were working at Intel when you were doing that research. Yeah, that's right. And something that we've been seeing a lot of, I think, you know, and from ride sharing companies and even from, I think, just other companies trying to get into this space is, you know, the self-driving car. Uh, I think it's Uber that already has like self-driving trucks, like big, like 18-wheeler rig trucks that go between like a stretch. I think it's between California and Nevada. Um or something like that. I'm curious to kind of get your take on where where the uh, where the autonomous vehicle sort of market is right now. Like, where do you see it going with the research that you've done so far? So the research that I did was more on the consumer side. Uh huh. In that, I the the different uh, personas and, and interviews and such that I were what I was doing. Um, it was on accessibility. We were looking at different types of riders for a, a ride share. Uh, service. And it was interesting because the one thing that kept coming out of that research was, I just don't trust it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So trust ended up being this huge, um, this, this huge nebulous, hairy, gnarly concept that we could never quite get ourselves around to figuring out trust in autonomous machines, not just vehicles, but machines in general. But looking at how we can use autonomous vehicles for improving access to to different communities and providing them the opportunity to move within their communities to other communities. However, we still need to be really concerned about the data that the cars are using to, to create their algorithms and to make their decisions, because where is that data coming from? Who was collecting that data? Hmm. If we don't have, again, if we don't have uh, inclusive voices at that table and helping to, to shape the data that we're collecting, then all the data we're going to collect is going to be from the point of view of particular of the ideal town or an ideal city setting. And it's like, hey, um, is anybody collecting data from Bankhead? You're from Atlanta, right? <laughs> yeah. Is it, no, that's true. Are they collecting? Are they collecting uh, driving data from from Bankhead? Because if you're not collecting driving data from Bankhead, then the type of decisions and the the vehicle designs, etc., the decisions that the vehicles are going to make are not going to be inclusive of different types of riders. Ooh, wow. No, I I was just thinking of um, Bankhead. Damn, that's deep. <laughs> no, 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 not not a Bankhead, but so. <laughs> Usually, like when I'm flying back, uh, flying back to Atlanta, I, I mean, I love now that I can take Uber or Lyft from the airport to get home because mm-hmm. whenever I would try to catch a cab, so I live in the West End, cabs mm-hmm. wouldn't go to the West End. Nope. They'll, t- they'll tell you, look, we'll take you downtown, which is past the West End, but we're not taking you to the West End. And this can be 
middle of the day, sun's out, you know, birds chirping, whatever. They're not going to the West End. I'm not talking about late at night. Like they won't even go in the middle of the day. And so I was glad that these ride sharing services are around because they'll take you where you need to go. Now I'm thinking, what if there's autonomous Lyft or autonomous Uber right now that's also like, oh, we don't service those neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And it's like, why not? I've been a long time customer and have lived in that neighborhood. Like, oh, man. See, this is some Black Mirror kind of stuff. Now you got me thinking... (laughs) Now you got me thinking about the worst alternative, but no, that's, that's, that's stuff that we need to know. I mean, that's good data that, like you say, inclusive design helps informs, helps inform those kinds of things. So those decisions don't end up being made, you know, on a whim. Wow. Yeah. That would suck if I got into a self-driving car and they're like, yeah, we're not taking you there. We're taking you somewhere else. Like that, that just sounds like the beginning to like a science fiction story. That's, that's wild. Yeah. Do you really want to go there? Right. (laughs) we'll take you to and then they just like read off some other random address or something midtown (laughs) right right we'll take you to midtown and whatever (laughs) Mm -hmm. so with everything that you've accomplished i mean what is it that sort of helps with like these ambitions that you have like you you know certainly have paved your own way going to stanford going to north carolina and getting your phd working at facebook like what what drives you to succeed like this? Mm. Honestly, nowadays, and again, this is uh, completely cliche, and I thought I would never be at this point in my life, but it's my baby. <laughs> mm-hmm. He is, no matter how tough a day I may have, no matter how tired or exhausted I may be, because I do travel a lot from work. When I see his smile, I just light up and it's like, oh, okay, it's okay. (laughs) It is okay. And I think about what I've done and how that's going to put him a different race than the one that I've been in. Mm -hmm. He's going to have his own race. He's going to have his own challenges because he is growing up as a little black boy in this country. So he's going to have his own challenges. But Mm -hmm. I do hope that with all of the work that I've done, that I've built a foundation for him that will allow him to be in a different race than the race that I've been in. Mm. What are you most excited about at the moment? Is it any like research or anything that you're working on? Uh, not, let's see about that. Um, there's a couple of things that I'm really interested in. One of which is I want to look at how big data can help empowering marginalized and oppressed communities in regards to healthcare, because Mm -hmm. with the repeal of the uh, Affordable Healthcare Act, and I, unfortunately, I don't think healthcare is going to be getting any better in this country. I think that the communities that are, that are going to be hit the hardest are the marginalized communities, our communities. Mm -hmm. And I honestly believe that we can use technology and all the data that's already available to us to help us come up with ways to figure that out, to, to, to figure that out, to, to improve the health um, of those marginalized communities, because if we can improve the health of marginalized communities, then overall, that's going to increase the workforce, the economy, education. So yeah, that's something I've been uh, toying around with a bit. And that's like a passion, personal thing. I've just been thinking about how we can do that. When you look back at your career, you know, your educational career, as well as, you know, working at Intel, IBM, Facebook, et cetera, what do you wish that you would have known when you first started? Hmm. Honestly, 
nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you why. In retrospect, I don't regret any of the experiences that I've had because with each one, I have learned something. I made sure I learned something from each experience I had. And what I kind of became known for telling like younger interns is I kind of became known for telling them, hey, use your internship to figure out two things, what you don't want to do and where you don't want to live. Hmm. <laughs> because the chances of you finding, you know, the, uh, the chances of you finding that perfect job with that perfect boss and that perfect team and the perfect product in the perfect city at the perfect company, it's going to be kind of slim. The first, hmm. <laughs> it's going to be kind of slim if you're an intern. I'm not saying it's impossible. All things are possible, uh, but it's going to be a, a very slim chance of that happening. So figure out what you don't want to do and cross those things off your list. For example, I worked at GE Transportation one summer and I and from that from that experience, I figured like, you know what? I do not like wearing a hard hat to work every day. Hard hat and and (laughs) steel toe boots. I don't like it. Some people like it and they're fine with it. I don't like doing it every day. I don't want to do it once a week. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to do it. So I figured out I figured out like, you know what? And going in the future, no matter where, no matter what career or job or company I end up at, I don't want to have that as part of as part of my job responsibilities. And that's something that I can talk about or speak to in interviews because mm-hmm. those kind of questions come up in interviews. Right. Like, oh, well, what kind of a team or what kind of environment, you know, is ideal for you? One where I don't have to wear a hard hat and steel toe boots. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second part of that is figuring out where you don't want to live. That summer, I lived in a place called, what was it, uh, Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. Mm. Population maybe like 800 or something. I don't know. But what I figured out from that, from that, situ- from that particular internship is that, you know what? I do not want to live in a small town where I have to drive. Actually, no, it wasn't about being a small town. I didn't want to live in a town where I had to drive an hour and a half to two hours to get my hair pressed. Mm. Yeah, that's, oof. It might take you that long even when you get to the salon and have to wait. Exactly. So <laughs> that was in uh and there's something that I, I called uh my my own like diversity indicator when I was looking when I was comparing job uh job options that I had been given. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, how many options do I have to get my hair done within a 30 minute drive? And that's how I because <laughs> some people were like, How did you end up in Portland, Oregon? Like I was like I was like, actually, it's a lot more diverse than you think it is because I had several options available for me to get my hair done. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something when people look at, you know, places to 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 move to. It's not just about the opportunity for work. Like mm-hmm. you're not going to be at work 24 seven. What are you going to do outside of work? What is yes. the city like? What's the mass transit? What's the what? I mean, you have to go and I mean, well, you can visit. But I mean, any other research that you can do, especially around like hair care and stuff like that for us. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. I totally understand that. Where do you see yourself in the next like five years or so? What kind of work do you want to be doing? Next five years or so? Um, probably still working in the advertising and marketing space. It's fascinating to me because of the different technology that marketers and advertisers have available to them. However, on the other side of it, I see the potential for problems that can come from uh, from it. A good example is, you know, uh, having algorithms that allow marketers or advertisers to only market real estate to certain communities or certain audiences or demographics. Mm -hmm. That's something like, okay, that that's, you know, that's a potential downside to this. 
but there's so much on the upside to it. Like, you know, the opposite of that is, hey, like we can now, like now we can um, have marketers and advertisers, they can have access to much larger pools of people than what they previously had access to. So that means more people can have access to, uh, to to real estate opportunities in areas they hadn't even considered before. So it's an interesting space to, to be in and I'm excited to learn more about it and how to support those marketers and advertisers to make to make the best decisions possible for their businesses, but then also to make the best decisions possible for their communities. And now just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you or about your work or your research online? So I don't have a website. I probably should get one. (laughs) Something I've been playing around with ever since uh, I was on maternity leave. But yeah, the best way I think to probably reach me is on LinkedIn. Um, Kwanisha Penna. Actually on Facebook as well. I'm pretty open on Facebook. Same thing, same name, Kwanisha Penna. And then I do have a researcher bio on the Facebook page. Um, Facebook, uh, research, I think it's research.facebook.com. And okay. you can actually go on there and you can see the different researchers in our areas and our, our little bios and stuff. Um, I know I always give that to, to customers that I reach out to for interviews so that that way they know that I'm real. That <laughs> 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 way well, they know that I'm real and I'm not like a troll or a bot or something <laughs> trying to mm-hmm. set them up. Like, no, you can actually see my bio and my picture and my face. Uh, so yeah, the Facebook, uh, research.facebook.com. All right. Well, I'll make sure we link to all of that um, in the show notes. Wow. Quanisha Penna, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing. I mean, one, the research that you're doing, you know, at Facebook and even the research that you've done before, but also just talking about, you know, your journey from growing up in Jersey, going to Stanford, you know, to where you are right now. I mean, I think it is important to show that there's more than one path to, you know, get into this industry or to work in this industry. There's so many different places that you can land. And I really like what you had to say about kind of, I mean, I think that's good that's good advice for interns, but I think that's for a lot of people, like find out what you don't want to do and where you don't want to live. Cause you'll find that will inform decisions a lot more than just, you know, what you do like. I'm not saying that you have to be negative, but you know, it, yeah. it helps, but yeah, uh, but no, thank you again so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. I um, enjoy the conversation and especially talking to somebody else who knows about crazy Atlanta. (laughs) (laughs) I don't meet many folks from Atlanta and Seattle. So So when I describe certain things and then they're like, what? (laughs) Like, why is there a circle around your city? (laughs) Oh, the perimeter. Yeah. People don't really understand the perimeter. That's true. That is true. (laughs) But yeah, again, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. And I look forward to um, being able to link out to it because my colleagues and everybody, they're very excited to hear about it, including the baby. <laughs> Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Dr. Kwanisha Penna and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kwanisha and her work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Maurice Cherry and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you liked this episode, then please let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. 
It only takes about a minute or so to do, but it really, really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.